This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello everyone, it's Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz, and this is episode 62. It's going to be kind of a brief interlude type of episode. Um, I'm going to briefly talk about OSR October and take a couple of call-ins from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Daniel from Bandit's Key. So, um, I apologize if this is a kind of a short and brief episode, um, I'm tired. <laughs> I am in the process of moving um, the entire house. <laughs> and we are picking up and moving out west and uh, looking forward to it. Um, the house that we bought is kind of a bit of a dream house uh, built around the turn of the uh, 19th and 20th century. So, um, yeah, it's a great opportunity and uh, going to be a lot of fun, but boy, <laughs> I am so tired of boxes. <laughs> and um, there, there's more yet to do, but I will get there. But uh, it has affected um, some of my gaming. Uh, some nights I've just been too tired to be able to even uh, properly GM. Other nights I've had things going on and haven't been able to GM. And over the next couple of weeks, I'm not going to be able to game because, well, I'm going to be in the middle of moving. So um, I suspect that my next episode won't be coming out till probably maybe the first or second week of October, just in time for October, OSR October. So that actually takes me to my uh, next thing I wanted to talk about, and this is a question for you all, um, those of you who are listening. So OSR October, I wasn't even really aware of, and then uh, talking to some of the other podcasters um, across the internet, apparently OSR October is a thing where you're supposed to talk about the OSR and particular uh, subjects and whatnot, and while I am definitely a player of the old school games and um, have been you know, involved with it for a long time, I don't have the slightest idea of what to do special for October that I don't already do you know, normally as a, as a normal podcast. So I'm asking you, what do you want me to do for OSR October? Is there a particular subject you want me to cover? You know, I, I thought about maybe about talking about my experiences from 2009-2010, maybe being part of the one-page dungeon creation and Targa and all sorts of the fun, <laughs> fun and drama-filled stuff back then. Um, you know, but I want it to be positive. So, um, well, certainly the one-page dungeon is positive. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't play a lot of the new OSR games. Um, I, you know, I'm the you know, OSE into the odd, uh, powered by the apocalypse. These are things that I've heard of in passing, but no experience at it. I'm 
As I tease uh, Jason a lot of times, I am a three-trick pony, OD&D, AD&D, and Traveler, and that is it. So anyway, if there is something you want me to cover in OSR October, um, you know, you could leave me a blog comment or uh, come comment on my Substack, um, ChicagoWiz, C-H-G-O-W-I-Z dot Substack dot com. Um, you could drop me an email. You could leave me a, a comment. You know, uh, I'll put in the show notes the various ways that you can get a hold of me. And yeah, let me know what topics you want me to talk about in ORSR October, and I will be happy to. All right, on that note, let's get to the call-ins. First, we have a couple from Jason and then a couple from Daniel. First up is Jason commenting on my episode 59. So let's hear what he has to say. Hey, Michael, Jason here. Just listened to episode 59, Traveler Charge-In and really enjoyed it. I really like the changes you made. I think they all make sense. I'm driving in the car right now, so I can't look. I've got this niggling memory of Traveler, the laser rifle, having a backpack to, to use it anyway. It, or was that an option to add a backpack for a larger number of shots or something? I don't remember. Um, but, but I've got this memory of a, of a rifle attached to a backpack, and I, th I thought that was Traveler. Um, other than that, yeah, I really think you, you nailed it. I think the changes make sense. I really like the patrons. I mean, that's the kind of thing I think could be ported into a normal Traveler game, the idea of having patrons. I, I really like that, especially considering traditional Traveler, you don't have normal advancement, so having a patron would be a huge boon to a character. And, of course, the other takeaway from your show is now I've got a real desire to to go rewatch both series because it's been a long time since I've seen either series. Um, so I kind of want to binge them both. Oh, one last thing for those that are saying there is a Battlestar Galactica game, just play that. No, I really like what you're doing. I think this really fits well. Although about 20 years ago there was a board game for Battlestar Galactica, and you know one of the players could be a traitor and. It was a really neat board game, and I really like that board game. If you ever get a chance to play that old Battlestar Galactica board game based on the new series, I do highly recommend it. It's a pretty great game. It's a co-op game where you're working together to solve it, except, you know, one of you might be a traitor or, or you know, a hidden Cylon. So, anyway, talk to you later. Hey, Jason, thanks for that uh, comment and uh, call in. You are indeed remembering correctly. Um in Classic Traveler 77, page 37 of book one, um, it talks about the laser carbine having a backpack power pack, and similar for the laser rifle, although it does make mention that you can't interchange between the two. So, and I was aware of that, but in my head, at least in my Battlestar Galactica universe and kind of thinking about how the 1970s made, you know, the technology kind of big and, you know, it was, it was interesting. Um, I see the laser power packs as being much larger than a backpack. I'm thinking of something on the order of the same size as one of the, um, uh, the, the spacesuit life systems that the Apollo astronauts had or, when the um, 
the, the folks on the space shuttle or the ISS go out into space on their spacewalks. I believe it's called the PLSS, um, Personal Life Support System, I believe is the acronym's full, um, full name. But it's huge. And the actual laser gun in my Battlestar Galactica universe looks like the gun that the Marines were toting around on the movie Aliens from the early 80s. You know, this thing, they had like this uh, belt system and the gun mounted on a swivel mount that came off their belt. And so, you know, this thing is just big and huge and, and ungainly. And something I think I need to put into the rules, actually, is that I want you to have certain strength requirements to be able to carry it. I'm thinking above average strength. So like an eight, you have to have an eight or above and you have to be a Marine or an Army person to have gotten training in these uh, laser systems. And in my head, the colonial... Uh, defense forces would have made them for you know anti-armor uses, perhaps um, you know against buildings or fixed position assaults, and you know possibly some sort of point defense against you know large attacks by you know big groups. You could basically use this thing, you know, sweep left to right, much like a machine gun, but it's a laser. So, but you know that that's just kind of my take on it. Um, so with, with patron, patrons, um, it's interesting because in the Traveler universe, at least as the 1977 book, um, kind of makes it sound like it's assumed that a PC has a chance of encountering a patron just through a normal everyday encounter. Um, Traveler's got a procedure for, you know, day by day, depending on where you're at and what you're doing you roll up for encounters, and one of the encounter types is indeed a patron. Um, my idea here was to, rather than have it be some sort of a random encounter, you come into your character, into the universe, with that, you know, that relationship already established. And as you rightly pointed out, um, it's very useful for someone to have, depending on how you know, the campaign uh, is going to go. And in my world, since low passage, medium passage, high passage isn't a thing that, you know, a, a service member would walk away with as something that they would get as a retirement benefit. This whole deal of having a patron was a substitute for a medium or high passage uh, result. And it's interesting, you you talked about going back and, and watching the uh, shows. I, I just finished a couple of weeks ago rewatching all of the 1978 shows, and it, it was such great fun. You know, there's some of the classic and problematic 70s kind of uh, things in there. But it's interesting, and I think I talked about this in the last episode. You have to forgive me, I'm, again, tired. Um how even in the 70s with the types of themes that you could get away with in broadcast TV, they were still exploring a few of the darker edges of what would happen to people if they were forced into this refugee situation where you couldn't go home and you were living in potentially very horrific circumstances and in, in really bad conditions. Um, you know, they, they, they skated very close to that. And 
I'll give them credit for trying to pull some of that into broadcast TV. Um, definitely left the seeds for uh, Robert Moore to pick up and run with in his 2003 cable series. Um, I will tell you, we do not speak of 1980 Battlestar Galactica. That did not exist. I do not acknowledge it because, boy, what a rotten series. Anyway, um, the board game, yeah, that sounds interesting. I have heard of it, but um, it's not something I've ever picked up. But now now you have me curious about it, so I may have to grab that and see what uh, my wife thinks about it. Um, well, yeah, so thanks, Jason, for the call-in, and uh, let's see what Jason has to say next. Hey, Michael, Jason here. Really enjoyed your latest episode. Yeah, I can't recommend the, how do you say, Xenopus, Xenopus archives enough. That, the, that website and the information he has on there is just so useful, and one of the interesting things, you know, he points out that Holmes manuscript series is well worth reading if you're interested in the history part because Gary went back and re-edited what Holmes sent him. And so it breaks down exactly what the changes were. And while, you know, it doesn't publish the original Holmes manuscript, you can go through that and pretty much piece together the actual Holmes rules through that series if you have a copy of Holmes um, D&D. And Holmes was also influenced by Warlock as well because he, he there are certain parts he just couldn't put together and make work. So he, he went and used Warlock, which I know you've read about over on there, but, but I think that's a whole other little you know sub side passage we could go down and discuss with, with the history of the hobby. But, but it really is fascinating to, to go back and look at this stuff, and um, I really appreciate your bringing it up. So thank you for that. And I look forward to your next episode. Thanks for that call in, Jason. Um, yes, Xenopus, uh, also known as Zach Howard, um, his site is a treasure trove of Holmes information. And um, actually, funny enough, um, the, the call ins from Daniel that we're about to listen to and the questions and comments that I'm going to answer, um, I'm going to reference a lot to uh, Zach's examination of the original manuscript that Holmes wrote and sent in to Gary Gygax and TSR, which was then edited and uh, changed in some places quite a bit um, to become the Holmes basics. So um, Zach was able to get copies of the manuscript and uh, he's got a whole series of posts on that. It's fascinating and I will include a link to it in my uh, show notes. And, and really, when you kind of sit back and look at what Holmes did to OD&D, it, it really is such a great example of how people could take this simple game and make it their own from a wide variety of, uh, of influences. Um, I've never played the game Warlock and only have heard of it in passing, but interestingly enough, again, <laughs> uh, Zach and Xenopus uh, has an entire blog post about the Warlock and the Warlock influences in, in the game itself. And I'll put a link to that also in, in the show notes. So, yep, thanks again, Jason. Appreciate it. And um, next up is Daniel from Bandit's Keep, and we'll see what Daniel has to say. Hey, Michael. Daniel from Bandit's Keep calling in. Uh, probably might call him with another message, but I wanted to 
I was listening to your latest podcast about Holmes, and I wanted to point out that um, on in book three, now I'm looking at the reprints from uh, Watsy there, so I don't know if your pages will be exactly the same, but on page 12, it's under weirdly, it's under the Avoiding Monsters section. Uh, it says, there's a 25% chance that any character surprised by a monster will drop some item. If he does, roll for the possibilities, re- remembering they can only drop things that are held in their hands. It's funny because I actually had um, forgot about that rule quite a bit, and then I saw somebody running a solo play, and <laughs> they actually did it. I was like, hold on, what? <laughs> so there you go. That That is an OD&D. The other thing, your, your conversation about the evil is really interesting, right? Because in Greyhawk, he kind of talks, he expands the alignments a little bit on page 6 into 7, but he makes a statement, which I think is really interesting, because he says uh, chaos is is just that, chaotic. But then he goes on to talk about evil. Like, it, basically, it's they kind of have similar tendencies, but it seems clear by the way that's written that chaotic is not necessarily evil, right? And then, of course, as you said, when you get to the last book, or is it the second last book, uh, Eldritch Wizardry, you start getting that, um, like, for instance, where mind flayers are lawful, but with, uh, it says highly evil, but otherwise lawful. So, yeah, you get that beginnings of that. And so that must have been where Holmes kind of started to tie that all together. Really interesting. Uh, I'll listen to the rest of your podcast. I'll, clearly, I'm close to the end now, but I'll listen again. And if there's something else I need to say, I will call in. Otherwise, thanks for putting out great content. Talk to you soon. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for calling in. And, yep, you're exactly right. It's right there in book three. And it's funny. It's one of those bits that I had kind of knew in the back of my head, but I had forgotten exactly where I read it. And interestingly enough, Holmes has the percentage as a one out of six. So you roll a one on a six-sided die. And that's a 17% chance versus OD&D having the 25% chance. So I don't know if this was just a case of he meant that to be that change or he just took, you know, he felt that maybe uh, one or two out of six, you know, a 32% chance was a little bit too high, so he opted for the less chance. Um, and funny enough, when you go back and you look at Zach Howard's um, analysis of the original manuscript that Holmes wrote, Holmes originally started out by having no changes to surprise or that things were being dropped. And then when Holmes Basic was published, that you have this rule that was added that, um, well, actually, you know what? I, I got to take that back for a second because I'm, I'm looking at this and, and um, Zach says no changes. So I guess what he's saying is that there were no changes from the manuscript to, oh, there's no changes from the manuscript to, the final output of basics. So Holmes did start off with saying one and six, which given he seemed to have a propensity for doing one and six, I guess it would make sense rather than taking a D 20 and just accepting a one through five. Anyway. um, So yeah, the, the subject on how alignments evolved is really fascinating. Um, Again, going back to Zach's analysis of Holmes original manuscript as, as, it basically came from his house rules. Um, Holmes was using the three-point alignment system of law, neutral, and chaos. But when you look at what was finally published, 
it was the five-point system, and this very definitely has Gary's uh, fingerprints all over it. In fact, you know, Gary had written about the five-point system in Strategic Review Number Six, which was published in February of, of 1976, and that seems to be, um, you know, going by what I've seen in the uh, Little Brown books and the supplements, and then Zach saying, you know, well, here's where. Gary first was publishing about the five point. It seems pretty clear that Gary was the um, impetus behind a lot of those changes in codifying, you know, including good and evil as part of the alignment. So just fascinating stuff. You know, for me, it's funny, you know, it's more of kind of like, oh, how did this come about than anything I use? Because really, for me, alignment is for clerics only in OD&D. And for the clerics and paladins in AD&D, pretty much anyone, everyone else is going to most likely be neutral or lawful. Um, it's, it's very rare that someone is, is of chaos in my game. So anyway, um, thanks for the comments. And let's see what else Daniel has to say. Daniel again. I <laughs> had one other thing I wanted to add. The, um, the multiple attacks thing. I haven't got there in Holmes. I just started reading it and... Uh... So I was missing some pages. I may have told you that before. And I finally got them, so I'm just reading it now, but I haven't got there yet. But I'm guessing he's getting that directly from Chainmail, right? Man-to-man combat, you get multiple attacks with smaller weapons. But, I mean, you don't get fewer attacks with larger weapons. But the thing is, if you're using the regular two hit tables, right, and you're using D6 damage, that actually really nerfs right large weapons and makes small weapons way better so i don't feel like i'd use that rule as written how he's got it in there as far as i can tell the parry is pretty interesting though and that is also from man-to-man combat if you choose to parry and they get the exact number then it breaks the weapon that's from man-to-man as well so that shows that he was using some of the chainmail rules with his OD&D. those two things are, are definitely from chainmail Hey, Daniel. Yeah, I agree. The attacks and the way that um, Holmes Basic as published makes daggers into these super weapons is really weird. But Zach reveals, again, in his analysis of the Holmes original manuscript, that all of those weird changes were TSR changes. Um, Holmes had it to where small and normal weapons were doing the two attacks per round and large weapons were doing one attack per round. And if you look at the charts, um, you know, it it makes a lot more sense now if you substitute that approach versus what TSR tried to stick in. So, but yep, uh, it's clear that Holmes was using uh, chainmail for some inspiration for how combat was supposed to work. So, uh, very cool stuff. And again, um, Dan, thanks for calling, and I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Um, this is a little bit of a shorter episode. Appreciate all of the call-ins. I always appreciate when everyone asks questions and has things to say, and I continue to learn from you all. And again, if you have any uh, thoughts on what I can do for OSR October, please let me know. Um, And uh, on that note, I will see you all sometime in October after I have relocated myself. So until then, game on.